Please turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Let me read it for us. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has, Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. They left him and went away. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, for we know that you speak a word to our hearts, all of our hearts, through your word and through your spirit. We pray that you give us open ears and open hearts to receive what you have to say to us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are returning to the second half of the Gospel of Mark that we did uh, covered last fall, and Brad last week helped us get us started again and, and talked about three sources of authority in our lives. And this morning we come to the parable of the tenants, which stands out for a few reasons. If you know your Bible, you know that most of the parables uh, occur in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So it's unusual to have a parable in Mark. And the last time we had a parable in Mark was back in chapter 4. So this is notably placed here. As part of my preparation for this sermon series, I often read Tim Keller's sermons because he preached the Gospel of Mark. And so as part of my preparation, I, I read his sermons from my own heart. And I noticed that he skipped this passage. And I wonder why. Um, it's not an easy parable to preach. It's about God's judgment on religious leaders. And what's interesting is the meaning of most parables is veiled, right? It's veiled to outsiders. So even Jesus' own disciples oftentimes have to say, hey, Jesus, what did you mean by that parable? But in this case, the religious leaders hear the parable, they, they know exactly what Jesus is saying. Because when he's done, they seek to arrest him because they know it's a word against him. It's a warning against religious leaders. And, and perhaps that's why Tim Keller skipped it, because not a lot of us are religious leaders. And so the question is, what does a parable like this have to say to us now? And here's one thing I want to lay before us. I think this parable offers a great vision of God. This parable on the surface of it is about a man who owns a vineyard and rents it to some tenants. And as you know, with parables, what Jesus would, would be, is, is doing is using stories from the daily experience of that culture to teach. And secular records from that time record how common it was for absentee landowners to use middlemen to supervise tenant farmers. So Jesus is taking a slice out of daily life here in this parable. 
And he's also picking up a common theme from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the vineyard was a metaphor for Israel. And we heard that in Isaiah 5 that Annie read for us this morning. And Jesus is clearly echoing the words of Isaiah 5 in this parable. As I was saying, this parable is a story about God and his vineyard. It's a story about God and his religious leaders. It's a story about God and his people. And so it doesn't just tell us about evil tenants. It also tells us a lot about God. And I think we need to hear this. The start of a new year, a fresh vision of God can help us. This quote from A.W. Tozer was printed in your uh, bulletin if you um, accessed it digitally. He says this, Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, What comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. He says, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect or ignoble thoughts about God. Our view of God directs how we live. So if you believe there is no God, that's going to have a great impact on how you live. If you believe that God is a uh, loving uh, but distant grandfather, that's going to affect how you live. If you believe that God is kind of a divine policeman waiting to, to catch you, that's going to affect how you live. If you believe that God is fundamentally an angry judge, it's going to affect how you live. Our lives are oftentimes determined by our view of God. I had a seminary professor that had this little quote on his office door. Big God, little problems. Little God, big problems. See, a fresh vision of a great God puts our lives into perspective. It puts all our problems into perspective. If you have a great grand vision of God, suddenly your problems and your fears and your worries and anxieties don't seem so big. But when you have a little God, that's when our problems really overtake us. I think this parable has a vision of a great big God. And in this parable, I think God is calling us to be faithful tenants not owners. God's calling us to be faithful tenants, not owners. And it's a vision of God that drives us. There are three aspects of God in this passage that motivate our faithfulness. I want to draw them out for us. God is the owner. God is a gracious owner. And God is a sovereign owner. So let's look at those three things. God is the owner. He's a gracious owner. And he's a sovereign owner. First, God is the owner. The fundamental reality that drives this story is clearly this man who plants a vineyard as the owner. So the vineyard belongs to him. When he rents his vineyard out, he's not giving it to these tenants. He's renting it to them. He's leasing it to them. It's kind of like when you lease an apartment, you don't become an owner. You're allowed to live in the apartment in return to, for paying rent. You're, you're leasing it. And the same way these tenants are only leasing this land. And, and back from the dynamics of that day, part of the agreement of that lease would be that some of the produce produced by the land belonged to the owner. So when the owner sends these, his servants to collect some of the fruit, he's, he's not being unreasonable. He's collecting what rightfully belongs to him. See, the reason why these tenants have a responsibility to be faithful at the, at the bottom line it, it, to this man is because he's the owner. The owner of the vineyard clearly represents God, and so this parable lays before us a simple but important reality. God as the owner of all things. In uh, verse 9, the word for owner is the Greek word kurios, which can be translated owner or lord, which is appropriate in this case. God is the Lord. 
And therefore, he is the owner, and we relate to him as tenants who've been entrusted with land. This is how God related to his people all through the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 7. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. In the same way, God is our owner because he's created us and because he's redeemed us. And at a fundamental level, God has fundamental ownership over all people by virtue of creation. This is the biblical perspective on reality. The Bible begins in the book of Genesis with these words. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And the implication of that is it all belongs to him. He created it, everything. And so it belongs to him. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch of the universe that God does not look at and say mine. He's the owner. He created it. It all belongs to him. All creation belongs to him, including humanity, because the Bible says we're created in his image. His imprint of ownership is on each of us individually. We are in his image. He's, he's the owner of us. And therefore, he's a rightful claim on our lives. And, and this is important to foundationally understand because the rest of the Bible makes no sense without this foundation. The good news of the gospel makes no sense without this foundation. So imagine going up to someone you know, that you've never met before and you, you, get, you have this conversation. You happen to say Jesus is the answer to your deepest problems. They, they, they raise an eyebrow and they say, oh, what, what problems do you mean? And you say, well, you're a sin problem. And they might say, especially today, well, what's sin? I don't understand that word. And you say, well, well, sins are an offense against God. And they might very well say to you, well, what God are you talking about? I don't know if there is a God. And I moreover, I don't know what God you're talking about. You see, unless we are morally accountable to God, sin makes no uh, uh, sense at all. Sin is a problem because God is our creator and we're morally accountable to him. If God is not our owner, sin is clearly not a problem. And Jesus is an unnecessary solution. The fundamental truth that this parable is is laying before us is God as the owner. The first thing that this parable is teaching is that God is our owner and that's why we're morally accountable to him. Here's an idea of what um, accountability might look like. When I, I was thinking about this the other day, when I took my sabbatical this past summer, I was very conscious of the fact that my time was not my own. It was three months off for me, not to use however I wanted, but very much I had the sense that I was entrusted with three months by this church and by the Lilly Grant for a specific purpose that the planning team laid out, we worked together, to lay out the purpose of these three months so that I might experience beauty and rest and family in such a way then I'd be more fruitful in the ministry here. And so I, um, I w- went into this um, sabbatical knowing that I had accountability. I knew that many of you this past fall would ask me how the sabbatical went. I recently completed a report for the Lilly uh, Foundation that asked questions like this. Which goals of your renewal program were met? Which program goals were not achieved? And what were the main barriers? What significant learning has emerged from this Experience. I knew I was going to have to answer those questions. And so when I was on my sabbatical, I was conscious of the fact that I was a steward, not an owner, of this time. So what did that mean? Well, it meant a few things. I don't usually keep a journal, but this past summer I kept a journal of what I did every day. 
because I was conscious of uh, spending this, this time, this trust had, that, that had been given to me very intentionally. That did mean I, I didn't rest. Here's one of the first journal entries um, of this summer journal. I took a nap on Saturday afternoon with Sunday coming. When was the last time that happened? It's an early indicator I'm on sabbatical. I knew that three months would go very quickly. I was very intentional about how I used that time. I had been given a gift. I would suggest to you that this is the mentality of a faithful tenant. And, and if, if God is our owner, think about that, what that means. If God is our owner and has given us everything we have, our time is not our own. Our money is not our own. Our homes are not our own. Our lives are not our own. And if you recognize this, you take this in. I'm, I'm accountable. God is the owner. I'm not the owner. I'm a tenant. If you take this in, I think it begins to change in fundamental ways the way that we say spend our money, spend our time, spend our lives. Here's an example of how this plays out. I was talking to a friend recently who goes to a, a growing church in Manhattan called Church of the City. It's, it's a, a growing church, especially among Gen Z. And my friend told me about an interesting thing they do every week. They recite what, what they call a, a, a generosity liturgy. Every week they cite this corporately, every Sunday, that their hearts might be shaped in the direction of generosity. Here's how this generosity liturgy goes at the congregation sites every week. Holy Father, there is nothing that I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am de determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. If God is our owner, then everything we have belongs to him. And that's the foundation for this call to be faithful stewards, faithful tenants, generous with what God has given and entrusted to us. God is the owner. Secondly, God is a gracious owner. This parable describes a man who plants a vineyard not just as a owner, but as a gracious owner. And, and maybe that surprised you because the, the most glaring thing in this parable is the judgment. But consider what leads up to it. Look at the care that this owner takes to make sure the vineyard will be fruitful. He plants it with such care. He builds a wall around it. He, builds a, he digs a pit for a wine press. He builds a, a watchtower to protect this vineyard. He takes great care. Spends a lot of effort to make sure that this vineyard will be fruitful. He cares a lot. He gives his tenants every opportunity to deliver fruit. He sends a servant. They seize and beat and send him away. And we would not take so kindly to that, would we? 
This is a very gracious master. So he sends another servant. And this one, they strike him on his head and treat him shamefully. And we would say, how dare you? We'd be up in arms. But not this owner. He sends yet another servant whom they kill. Demonstrating the, the, the miraculous grace and patience of this owner, he sends many servants to collect his share of the produce whom they beat and they kill. I mean, it's worth reflecting for a moment on if we were the owner, how, how would we respond? I mean, not, not so well, I suggest. I mean, we would have righteous anger. I mean, we, we live in the Northeast, right? So if someone dares cut us off on the road, we, we, you know, we bear our wrath. They treat us like this? I don't know what we would do. The amazing thing about this story, the climax of this story in verse 6, is this owner has one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sends him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. And how do these tenants, these wicked tenants respond? They say to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they take him, and they kill him, and they throw him out of the vineyard. It's the ultimate indignity. They don't even bury the corpse of their owner. So they, they, they kill him, and they just throw him out of the vineyard. It's how they respond to the grace of the owner. They kill his beloved. And you say, what in the world are they thinking? How, how do they think they're going to get away with this? You know, perhaps they think that the son coming is an indication the owner's dead. And so they, they kill the son, the heir. It's ownerless property. This is their chance to, to seize the property, to become owners. And maybe more profoundly, what in the world is the owner thinking? I mean, is he naive? Is he stupid? I mean, would you send your beloved to wicked tenants who've killed all your servants? Would you turn around and say, well, I got it. I'm going to send my beloved son. And yet this is what God does with Israel. This is a history of God's relationship with Israel. He sends his servants, the prophet, prophets, to his wayward people, calling them to faithful tenants and looking for the fruit of repentance. But repeatedly they mistreat God's servants. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Hebrews 11 says of the fate of God's prophets, they were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. John the Baptist was beheaded. You see, God waited mercifully and graciously hundreds of years for his people to repent and to be faithful. He gave them many chances to repent. And then, though he, all his servants were mistreated, God sent his only beloved son, whom they rejected and killed. My friends, it's the expression of the natural human hostility to God. In our fallen state, God is our mortal enemy. In our fallen state, we're all trying to get rid of, the, of God out of the universe. And God knows this, and yet he's not naive, and he's not stupid. He's not surprised by the treatment of his son. It doesn't catch him off guard. As we're going to see in a moment, God was sovereignly, even in this moment of great evil, accomplishing his redemptive purposes. But God sending his beloved son to wicked, evil tenants is an expression of the depths of his grace, patience, and love. He does what none of us would do, sending his beloved son to wicked tenants who would mistreat them. him. God's amazing grace has given us far more than we deserve. Many more chances 
Blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, gifts upon gifts. It's like that moment in Les Mis where the priest takes in Valjean under his roof, gives him dinner and a room for the night because he has nowhere else to go. You know this story. How does Valjean repay the grace of the priest? He repays him by stealing his silverware and silver plates and running off in the middle of the night. And when he's caught by the police and hauled back to the priest, the priest doesn't say, you jerk, you, you thief. I, I showed you grace and you, you treat me this way. The priest says, you forgot to take the candlesticks. Words of grace. The priest gives Valjean the silver as a gift. He says, you, you forgot to take the candlesticks. So the police will let him go. Amazing, undeserved grace. That grace transforms Valjean's life. He becomes a completely different man. My friends, in the same way, God's grace should transform our lives. When we have received God's grace, blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, gift upon grace, chance upon chance, a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, we should be graceful with others. Jesus tells this great parable of a man who's forgiven this huge gift by his king, and he turns right around and collars someone for a little gift and says, if you understand the grace that you've been shown, you'll be a very forgiving person of other people. If we understand God's grace, we'll be gracious towards others and we'll be faithful tenants to God because he's the giver of all good gifts. There is a warning here. God is gracious, but his grace is not unlimited. God's grace is amazing, but it does come to an end when they kill his son. Verse 9, he had uh, one son left to send his son, and they kill him. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In the parable, it is a warning to these religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus. And even in this parable, at the 11th hour, he's giving them a, an opportunity to repent. Turn away. To, uh, turn. It's not too late. You don't have to do this. And it's a warning to anyone who continues to spurn God's grace. God's grace is amazing. Undeserved. But not unlimited. God will endure unfaithfulness for only so long. God's grace is not a license to sin. It's a call to faithful tenancy and faithful stewardship. God is an owner. He's a gracious owner. And then third, he is a sovereign owner. Jesus ends this parable by quoting Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This little verse, it's a picture of, of builders putting together a building, and they're, they're gathering stones, the right stones to build this building. And they come across a stone, and they say, this, this stone has no place in this building, and they just cast it off. And ironically, this is the very stone that becomes the cornerstone of the building, the most important stone that holds the whole building together. And Jesus takes this image, and he applies it to himself, and it reveals his, to us his, his self-understanding, even at this point in his life. He knows Jesus going to the cross, knows that he is the son, beloved by his father. He knows he has been sent by his father to wicked tenants to call them to repent. Jesus knows he will be killed by their hands. And he also knows that his death will not be the end of the story. He is the rejected stone who will become the capstone. 
Through Christ's death, God will save his people for himself. It's the good news of the gospel. Jesus ends this parable on a note of God's sovereignty. You see, God's purpose is not thwarted by these evil tenants. They do not and will not succeed in their evil scheme to steal the vineyard. They do not deliver a blow to God by killing his son. They actually, in the wonder of God's sovereignty, accomplish his redemptive plan. Here's the wonder of God's sovereignty. He can use even evil men with evil purposes to accomplish his divine redemptive purposes. And God's sovereignty is on display supremely in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Think about that event. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, evil men put him to death. And yet, at the same time, in the very same moment, God was accomplishing redemption for his people. Here's what Peter says in Acts 2, one of his early sermons in the early church. He says, this, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It's a pretty interesting verse. By God's set foreknowledge, evil men put Jesus on the cross. See, God in his sovereignty didn't excuse the, the evil actions of sinful men. They were morally responsible for what they did. They were evil. And yet their actions at the very same time are according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It's a mystery. Right here, side by side, human responsibility and God's sovereignty, side by side, working together in a great mystery. Here, God's sovereignty is a motivation for our faithfulness. Jesus himself was obedient to death. He was willing to be rejected by men crucified on a cross because he trusted that God had a purpose in it. And he trusted God's sovereignty. God's purpose in Jesus Christ could not be thwarted by evil men. And God's purpose in your life cannot be thwarted even by evil men. J.I. Packer is, or was an author, passed away a couple of years ago, who has been very impactful in my spiritual life. And a number of years ago, I read a biography of him that relates this very interesting example of God's, the workings of God's sovereignty. When Jay Packer was seven years old, he was a shy and uncertain little boy. And a bully chased him off the playground and onto the busy London streets, and a bread truck saw him at the, too late to stop and hit him. And he fell to the ground with a major head injury. He was rushed to the hospital where it's discovered that he had a compound fracture of the frontal bone on the right side of his forehead, and it was potentially very, very serious. The surgeon at the hospital immediately operated to extract bone fragments from inside his skull and to repair as much of the damage as possible. In the sovereignty of God, the surgeon had just returned from Europe where he had specialized in these surgeries, so he had the right man for the job. The surgery was successful, but the accident was a major disruption in J.I. Packer's life. As a young boy... He had to spend three weeks in the hospital and then was ordered to have six months recuperation away from school. Pretty, pretty disruptive. On top of this, because he was left with a small hole in his right forehead, he had to wear a protective aluminum plate over that injury for most of his adolescent years, which made it impossible for him to play sports. It reinforced his tendency to be a loner. So he was left on the outside of most things at school. 
who was subjected to bullying. He found solace in solitary things, and this is a time in his life that he developed a love for reading and eventually writing. And in the sovereignty of God, this is what God would use so mightily in his life, is J.I. Packer's reading and his writing. He became one of the foremost theologians for the church at the end of the last century because God's overruling sovereignty can take even the accidents in our lives and use them for good. God calls us to be faithful tenants, faithful stewards. He's not an absentee landlord. Wicked servants will not get away with their evil forever. God is the owner. He is a gracious owner, and he is a sovereign owner. And so as a start to this year, it's a call for us to have this view of God and have this view of ourselves as faithful stewards, faithful tenants, generous with our money and our time and our talents because God is our owner and poured out all these things on us. We've had evidence of financial generosity here in this room at the end of last year. It's wonderful. Praise God. We have an opportunity as this year starts to be just as generous with our time and with our talents. As you know, as we're, we're seeking to grow and develop, we need lots of volunteers for hospitality ministry and ushering ministry and our, our wonderful children's ministry. We're trying to rebuild some ministry teams that fell apart in the pandemic, an outreach team and a compassion team and a, a mission team. God is our gracious and sovereign owner. And he calls us to be his faithful stewards and tenants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision of you, that you are the owner of all things, that you're so gracious with us because you want us to develop fruit that glorifies you, that, that brings good into our lives, and so you give us chance upon chance, blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, gift upon grace, gift. Lord, would you help us to respond, to see that, to take that in, to see you as our gracious and sovereign owner, and then offer you everything, our time, our money, our lives, our hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.